I used to run those battle lines trying to smooth over what God said, trying to get a medal, trying to get some shrapnel in my head. I thought it was my duty to plead and to implore, but I got caught up in your crossfire, in your covert war. The television talk fills the air so you don't have to start. You claim your territories in the rooms upstairs to keep yourselves apart. But holy days, they bring us all together after so much left is unsaid. You taught us well not to kick under the table, but to kick under our breath instead. I used to stand between you, trying to smooth over what God said, trying to get a medal, trying to get some shrapnel in my head. I thought it was my duty to plead and to implore, but I caught too much crossfire in your covert war. I love you and I never want to see you bleed. So when comments cut like steel, I'd hold the fire and I'd block the shot and I'd take the hit for you as if I couldn't feel. I thought they passed right through me, that I had no scars to hide. But now I open up and I try to love and I find they're still inside. I used to run those battle lines trying to plead and to implore, won't you hold a ceasefire out just a little longer until the next uproar? I took it all in childhood. This guy's an adult that's writing the song, but I can't take it no more because I caught too much crossfire in your covert war. I mean, that's what pushing back looks like, right? In the home and outside of the home, when there's give and take and the cycle never ends. So that's what it looks like. And just to note, it doesn't just affect you, but it affects everybody around you. I heard a business guy commenting the other day that it's hard to find good managers because to manage people means that you have to hold a group of folks together and it's just natural that there's conflict. It's inevitable. And you have to deal with the infighting, the criticism, the jealousy, the envy, the, envy, the, the selfish ambition. It takes a lot of wisdom and tact and diplomacy to hold folks together. And if you've ever tried to manage a business, run a church, I mean, we people in the church are the worst about infighting and criticizing, we realize that as humans, this dynamic is true. There's a lot of push and pushback. So we can fight. That's one response. Some of us aren't that tough. And actually, I think if you're not that tough, you stand a better chance of making your way to forgiveness because typically it's the weak who turn to God. But one way that we can passively fight uh, or run is that uh, we start to exercise uh, control and we make vows. Now, Somebody explained to me what a vow was uh, three or four years ago, and I kind of went back through my childhood, and I realized I had made some vows. This is how a vow works. Somebody hurts you, and you swear that nobody will ever do that to you again, ever. And I don't care if you're 7, 15, or 30, you lock that vow in, and it may get pushed down and buried, but you're on autopilot. Nobody will ever hurt me that way again. And so let me explain practically how this might work. A girl grows up in a family where there's divorce and she's crushed by it. And she says, I will never get a divorce. She makes that vow. No matter what it takes, I will make it work. Well, one day she runs into another guy who's made a vow and he's been hurt by people. And he says, I'll never let anybody hurt me again. I'm, I'm going to make a vow to always be in control. Well, those two people fit together like a hand in a glove. Because you've got one who's made a vow that they'll never let a marriage fall apart. And you've got another one that says they'll always be in control. And you have a codependent relationship 
where people are holding on to one another, not with God as the center, but their commitment to this vow that they've made in the deepest part of their being. You see how vows work? And I guarantee you, if you go back and look, we've all made vows. So that's one thing that we do. A real indicator of whether or not you've made vows is how much do you use the word in your mind, never and always? We try to keep our kids from using those words, by the way. Uh, I mean, come on. I never get any candy. Are you kidding, kids? <laughs> uh, but those are dangerous words. If you ever say uh, that to yourself, to others, never, always, look out because there's something behind that. So part of our flight strategy is that we, uh, we make vows and we exercise control. Another thing that we do is we just suppress it and we become bitter and we become poisoned, uh, even to the point of, of rage, suppressed rage. I'm convinced that that's why television shows like Breaking Bad are so popular, which I actually like, but you have a man that's taken so many licks in life and he's down and out and suddenly he finally is able to release that rage and it's vengeance and he's taking control. And I think that's satisfying to those of us who feel weak and abused and like we've taken too many licks. I mean, we want some power and uh, uh, Walter White exercises all sorts of power. I mean, he just wipes everybody out. You cross him and he learns it over time. It's eye for an eye. I mean, he's living by law, baby, and, and, and it's done. So um, we can grow bitter. My grandmother on uh, my mom's side of the family, uh, Pauline Davis, was a very bitter woman. She... Uh, Grew up, was born in the 30s, married my grandfather, who was uh, an, an officer in the army. He went over to France, came back from the war, and at the age of 30, died in a car wreck. And my grandmother was left to raise my mother, who was an only child. And after that car wreck uh, and the loss of her husband, she had nervous breakdowns. And so she actually had to go into the hospital. My mom was left on her own to be raised by some relatives. And uh, while my grandmother was in the hospital, uh, her family, so I, I, I can't prove, this is what I heard, you know how family rumors work, but took some land that apparently had belonged to her and so wealth was stolen from her. And then to cap it all off, and this will tell you a little bit about me and sort of my family dysfunction, uh, not dysfunction, history. My mother, <laughs> That yeah, sounds better. My mother, who was this bright uh, young woman at 18, uh, honor old kid, played the flute in the band, beautiful woman, ends up getting pregnant at 19. My dad's the father of, of this baby. And you have to know my dad's side of the family. I mean, these are tough hombres. Poor, literally on the other side of the tracks, minority family. And my dad to this day, I'll tell you, I would never wanted my daughter to marry me <laughs> at 19. So for my grandmother, that was sort of the nail in the coffin. For the rest of her life, people had stolen from her. She'd lost her husband and her daughter's life was ruined by my father. And so as a kid, I could see the bitterness uh, in the family and I could see my grandmother. I always kind of thought it was funny, but by the end of her life, the lines in her face were turned downward. She, there was sort of a scowl, a permanent scowl on her face because of the bitterness. So another passive way that we handle the abuse in life is we just suppress it and we push it down. So here's the question. That's how, why it's hard. That's the truth about 
the way the world works. So how do we get out of this cycle? Is there another option other than responding to attacks, to going tit for tat? And so here's my answer. There is an, uh, uh, a solution to the problem, and that is intervention by a third party. Uh, and we know this story because we come to church. God's intervened through the person of Jesus, right? He's come down, and there's a third party that's now entered into the relationship. And that third party is offering both forgiveness to the person who's abusing and also care and comfort to the one that's abused. Uh, there, Clint Eastwood was in a movie called Grand Torino about three or four years ago. I don't know if you saw it. Great movie. I always like. You know, I, I, I'm attracted to these movies where there's people get what's coming to them. And uh, so he's a World War II vet. He's lived in the same house with his wife his entire life in San Francisco. At the end of his life, his kids are trying to put him in the old folks home and he doesn't want to go there. So the neighborhood begins to fill up with uh, a lot of Asian families. But with this influx of Asian family come, comes a lot of Asian uh, gang activity. And there's a kid next door to him named Tao that he kind of sees from a distance. And uh, Tal tries to steal his 1956, I don't know what year it was, Grand Torino car. I mean, this car is beautiful. And so what happens is, is that uh, Clint Eastwood, who his character's name is Walt, Walt decides rather than to put it to Tal, because he's a pretty tough guy, he takes him in and he starts to mentor him. Well, he discovers that Tal is into it with these gangs. And that these guys are after him. And at one point, the gangs even raped Tal's sister. So it gets really ugly. So Walt goes on this march for justice and starts confronting the gangs. And he whips a couple of people. Well, at the end, Walt realizes that if somebody doesn't kill the gangs, uh, that this cycle is eventually going to kill Tal. And he cares about him a lot. So he decides he's going to go and he's going to confront these gang members at their home. So he walks up to the lawn. It's, it's, a, it's nighttime and he starts to call them out. And they all come out and there's guys in the windows with guns and two guys come out of the front door and they're both packing heat. And something very interesting happens at this point. Just when you think justice is about to be handed down and that uh, he's going to take care of these gang members, he actually slowly reaches into his jacket like he's going to pull out a weapon and he allows them to unload on him and he's killed there on the spot. So very interesting. In this cycle of violence, the third party enters the equation and rather than wiping somebody out, actually takes on the suffering and death and in that solves the situation because those who shot him are convicted and they go to jail and Tao is saved. So it takes third-party intervention, some sort of sacrifice, some sort of selfless act to execute justice and to free the oppressed. And that's a, it's a beautiful picture of what it is that Jesus does for us. At the end of the film, actually, in his will, Walt leaves Tao that car, and you see him driving off in the end, and a dog, actually. So it requires third-party intervention. That's how we are able to forgive and move beyond this cycle. Let me read this to you. This is uh, some quotes from Bono. And if you won't listen to Jesus, I'm thinking you might listen to Bono, right? Because he's, you know, probably more popular than Jesus these days. 
This is what Bono had to say. It's mind-blowing concept that God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. You see, at the center of all religions is this idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, or an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, or in physics, the physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm actually sure of it. My kids know that. Put it to them. Spank them with the spoon. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all of that. As you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. It interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your action, which in my case is, a very, is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. Now that's between me and God, but I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep expletive. I thought about saying that in church, but it might rattle some cages. Anyway. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins on the cross because I know who I am, and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. The point of the death of Christ Jesus is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that we, uh, so that what we put out does not come back to us and that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. That's the point. It should keep us humbled. It's our own good works that get through the gate. It's not our own good works that get through the gates of heaven. So interesting. We live in a world of retribution, of getting even, and suddenly grace interjects itself, and you don't have to pay for what you've done. Amazing. But here's where forgiveness comes in. When you really know that, you stop making people pay for what they've done. And I'm telling you, this is a real struggle for me. When Bill told me he wanted me to preach on this, I was like, are you kidding me? I'm a get even. I don't do it, but it's in my heart. I mean, I would surely celebrate some bad things happening to people. You know that feeling? Do you know it? I mean, it's in there. But to the degree that I know I'm forgiven, I will forgive. Jesus tells a story about two servants uh, that worked for uh, their master. I'm sorry, one servant. Actually, there were two, but he's dealing with one. The one servant owed, owed the master $100,000. That's about where it trans, the money translates in the parable. And the master calls him in and he goes, you owe me money. If you don't pay me, you're going to jail. You'll be separated from your family. You're going you're to be punished. The guy falls down weeping and crying. Forgive me. I can't pay the debt. Don't put me in jail. And so because of the plea, the master had great compassion. And he forgives the man's debt. Well, the man leaves, goes out into the streets, and immediately he finds a friend that owes him 100 bucks. I mean, $100,000 versus 100 bucks. And he said, you need to pay me my money. And the guy says, I don't have it. I can't pay you. Would you give me some more time? No, no, you're going to pay me or you're going to jail. News gets back to the master that this guy who he's forgiven such a great debt won't forgive another man a small debt. So you know what he does? He throws him in jail. He makes him pay for it. I mean, that's a scary story, right? So uh, is that true for us, that if we don't forgive, we won't be forgiven? Outside of Jesus, yet, I think it's utterly impossible to forgive unless you're in a relationship with God. And and you will not be able to give, therefore you won't be forgiven. But as we get to know Jesus and we understand 
the depravity, the mistakes, the troubling heart that's in us, and we see what we're forgiven, we will forgive. So let's, let's change the parable a little bit. Let's say that the guy that was forgiven the $100,000, he really understands it. He doesn't just know it in his mind like we do at times. But that reaches down to the very core of who he is. That what this man has done for him, he's absorbed the loss, forgiven the debt, freed him from what he's obligated to, reaches down so deep in his heart that when he comes across the other man that owes him $100, he's like, hey, keep the hundred bucks. I know where I've been and I know that I've been forgiven. I want to read something to you out of Isaiah. And I, I loved it that Dave had them read Isaiah this morning. Can, will, you, will you try to listen to this? So I'm hoping that you'll figure out and that I'll figure out that I've been forgiven a big debt and that it'll move past my mind and my heart. And uh, the scripture needs to speak to us not just to, to our rational processes, but it needs to reach down deep. It's the only way we'll be changed. This is what it says in Isaiah 53, 500 years before Jesus showed up. This is what they said about Jesus. Who can believe what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? And that's why I believe the Christian faith is true, because I would assume God would come clean up this mess as a general or as a very powerful person. But this is what Isaiah says about Jesus and how he comes. The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and the people turned away. We looked down on him, we thought that he was scum, but the fact is, it was our pains that he carried, our disfigurements, all that is wrong within us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing for his own failures, but it was our sins that did to him, uh, that, that did it to him, that ripped and tore him and crushed him. It was our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who have wandered off and gotten lost. We've all gone down our own road. We've gone our own way. And God has piled up all the sins, everything that we've done wrong on him. Does that sit deep with you? So how in the world... Do we work toward forgiveness once we're honest about how hard it is? Once we see how it works and that there's third party intervention, that someone has overlooked both our external behavior and these desperate hearts that are on the inside that think terrible thoughts. How is it that we move into that? And Dave read the scripture this morning out of Ephesians. But this is what it looks like. Here's what the Ephesians 5 passage says. Paul's telling the people in this community, you need to remember who you are. He's not telling them to try harder to forgive. He actually goes through a long list of to-dos. If you were stealing, stop stealing and give to people. If you're speaking bad about people, be encouraging. Stop doing that sort of thing. He goes through a long list, but that list is preceded not by try harder so 
trying this way. He says, you need to understand who you are. In understanding your true identity, you'll be able to move toward forgiveness. So we have to put on a new identity. These are the words that he uses. You need to understand that you've been made new. Do you understand that our faith is not a religion that deals with exterior behavior like other religions? All other religions just give you a a moral system to try to measure up by and do well. And if you get it right, maybe God takes you in. Ours is about a remaking of your identity. So you have to know who you are in Christ is what he says. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He's claiming that God's spirit lives in you, that it's personally relating to you and giving you the strength. So this is how we forgive. Not by white knuckling it and trying harder and saying, I'm not going to hate that person anymore. We go back to God and we understand our relationship with him. That he's forgiven me, that I'm his son, that I'm in this family. He's reconciling the world. That's who I am. That's who our church community is. And in that, we take the first steps toward forgiveness by understanding who we are. And so often we're trying to fight these moral battles in our lives by just willing ourselves to do right. If you could save yourself, you would not need God. You are weak. You have to go back and remember who you are, that you've been made new, that God has planted his spirit. Don't grieve the spirit in you. And as you do that, as you relate vertically with God, your horizontal life will improve. You'll be able to take steps toward forgiveness. So we have to remember that as we... uh, think about what it looks like is that we have to put on a new identity and that we have supernatural help by means of the Holy Spirit. So next time you're slighted in the smallest way or there's some of you that are probably really struggling with forgiveness and I'm going to touch on this in a second. The best thing that you can do is not try to get to forgiveness in one moment but just ask God for help. That, That in and of itself is a victory. God, will you please help me? So This is what it looks like when we began the the process of forgiving. We suffer in our forgiving. We embrace justified anger. We trust God's justice. That's a tough one. And then finally, we rest in God's guarantees. So, suffering and forgiving. How many of you have ever forgiven somebody? Did it hurt? Oh, it kills you. Come on. It costs you something to forgive. Because you're letting somebody off the hook and you're having to carry the grief of that, whatever it was they've done, you're having to bear that offense in yourself. And if you've done it even a little bit, can you imagine what Jesus might feel like? Having bore the weight of all the wrongs in the world in the past, doing it on the cross in one moment where it was so bad that God turned his head from his son and then he continues to bear All of this as the world continues until finally everything will be made right. So Jesus continually suffers as we hurt and abuse one another. He, in his forgiveness, bears the weight of our errors. This is what Tim Keller says about bearing the weight of forgiveness. And it is hard. Other than fighting or running, there's a third option. You can forgive. Forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did. However, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is pure agony. It's a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation, and opportunity, but now you forego the consolation of inflicting the same on them. 
You're absorbing the debt. Taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it on the other person, it hurts horribly. Many people would say it feels like a kind of second death. Yes, but it is death, and we see this modeled out in the life of Jesus, that leads to resurrection instead of the lifelong living death of bitterness and cynicism. So I got bad news for you. You got pain both ways. Pick your medicine. You can move toward bitter and hatred and that will wipe you out. Or with God's help, you can bear the suffering of forgiving. But it's going to hurt. It's really all we got. Two painful choices. But suffering forgiveness leads to resurrection life. If they simply refuse to take vengeance on the wrongdoer in action, and even in their inner fantasies, the anger slowly begins to subside. You're not giving it any fuel, and so the resentment burns lower and lower. Forgiveness must be granted before it can be felt, but it does come eventually. It leads to a new peace, a resurrection. It's the only way to stop the spread of evil. Now, that leads me to my point about trusting in God's justice. I spent three summers over in Bosnia after the war there in the late 90s. And I met with a lot of people that suffered under that conflict. And this was nothing new to them. They've been killing each other for centuries. The, the lines are divided along ethnical and religious lines. And there's been this cycle of violence. Now we're talking, this is extreme cycles of violence. Not just arguing, not fighting in a household, but lives being taken. And there's a guy over there named Miroslav Wolf who's actually teaches at Yale Divinity School, Department of Theology. And he wrote, wrote a book called An Exclusion and Embrace. And in this book, he says this, without a God of justice, there will never be peace. Because if there's not a God of justice, then justice is left to me because there never will be any and I have to exercise it myself. I have to get justice myself. But if I can believe there's a God of justice and trust that my enemy ultimately be put into his hands, then it's God's deal. And I don't have to move toward retribution and claim uh, uh, justice and, and make them pay. What a model for peace, right? You can only have peace in this world if you believe there's a God of justice. And so in forgiving, we have to turn people over to God. What did God say? Vengeance is mine, right? It's not ours. And in doing that, we will find peace. And that's the only hope for peace in the world. If you don't believe in a God, then justice is left to us. And it's dog eat dog. Another reason why I think the Christian faith is true. It's the only faith that offers an alternative to, uh, to retribution. And that is God gives grace, asks us to lean on him for justice, and then therefore we don't act. And there's possible possibility for peace in the world. So we have to trust God's justice. We have to suffer in our forgiving and finally, this is a really important point, and I'm almost done, but uh, the verses that uh, Dave read said, in your anger, don't sin. I am not telling you that you should not be angry about what some people have done to you. Righteous anger is normal. It's a good thing. It can be a very good fuel to help you move in right directions. So anger is not wrong. It's just anger that leads to hatred. Uh, that becomes wrong. You know, Jesus said, don't hate someone. It's like murder. That's true. You can move out of anger to hatred. And then the next step actually is murder, right? Um, or at least thinking it in your mind. You're justified in being angry. And Forrest Gump, which is a great story, 
Do you remember Jenny grew up? Terrible home life, led a destructive life because of all the abuse she suffered as a child, went through the hippie movement. Well, eventually, because of the unconditional love that Forrest provides for her, he's always there, never holds a grudge. She abuses him. He welcomes her home. His love changes her life over that story. In the end, she returns to him because his love is unconditional. And he takes her out down this old dirt road to this house that she grew up in. And she was sexually molested in that house by her father. And she begins to pick up rocks and throw rocks at that house until she finally breaks down and weeps. And Forrest says, you know what? And this totally justifies how she feels and what she has done. He said, sometimes there just aren't enough rocks in the world. And for some of you here, you need to know that your anger is justified. It's okay to be angry. Forgiven doesn't mean you forget. It doesn't mean that you're not angry. Sometimes it pushes you to set the appropriate boundaries and to realize I'm not going that direction again. That person's not good for me. But don't let your anger turn to hate. And don't let it evolve into sin because it will ruin you. And that's the line. And it's a tough line. It's a tough line. So we need to put on our our new identity in order to forgive. We need to suffer in our forgiving. That's a sign that it's happening. We need to embrace and justify our justified anger. We need to trust in God's justice. And I'm going to end on this one. We need to rest in God's guarantees. And I'm going to step out on a limb here and kind of show you my cards theologically. I I think that if you know God, he's going to do the work in you. It's a guarantee. It's a promise. Uh, Like I said, we're all a lot weaker than we know or realize. And uh, I think that eventually, if you know God personally, you will move toward forgiveness. It may be a long process. He will help you. And sometimes if you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. And sometimes that inch is admitting you're angry. Sometimes that inch is, God, help me. That's all I can get out of my mouth in regard to this particular person. Just help me. God will do the work in you because he's in you. And I want to tell you about my grandmother because I think it's a fantastic story. I mentioned her earlier. Uh, my grandmother turned 79. Uh, she became very ill. And my parents were in East Texas, and she was uh, in Brookhaven, Mississippi. So they went out to pick her up, and they brought her into their house to live. And so I was driving from San Antonio up to see my grandmother, because I knew she was dying, and my parents were taking care of her. And when I got there, I looked at her, and she looked different to me. She wasn't this bitter, hateful woman that I had known all through childhood, which actually was kind of funny to me that she was that way. It's like somebody on a sitcom. But her face, like the the tension was released. And I could tell that something had changed in her. And so I, I started talking to her and she told me that she had been watching Charles Stanley on television over the last three or four years. And she had started to think about the hardness of her heart and the anger And I was just amazed, like something had really transformed in her. And she said to me, she goes, it's just really hard for me to be here, uh, to to have, uh, you know, your mom and your dad take care of me. And I said, you know, Grandma, you need to let us do this for you. Let us take care of you. I know it's humbling. And she said, I will. And she, that moment, kind of released that concern. So I drove back and forth over the next few months to see her. 
Um, and finally, uh, I, I made it up there one weekend, and she was, a, she was soon to die. Her breaths were shortening. She was, my, my parents built a room onto their house with a lake view so she could lay in bed and see the lake uh, while she laid in bed. And guess who was taking care of my grandmother during this time? My dad. Sorry. The guy that she resented her whole life. I get emotional about my dad sometimes. Um, he bathed her, carried her naked body to the tub, bathed her, watched over her, stayed up with her all night long. When I was there, she passed away. My dad came in at 2 a.m. in the morning and he said, son, your grandmother just passed away. And I thought, Unbelievable. The man that my grandmother, and my dad came to faith at an early age, so that's why his life was different. But the man that she resented her whole life was, was the only one there when she died. Now, you want to give credit to my dad, but I'm going to tell you that's the way that God is faithful. He sticks with us, He will use people, He will use circumstances and situations to soften your heart so that you can forgive. So when you come to this verse in the Lord's Prayer, forgive as we've been forgiven, really sink into this because uh, God will be faithful. You can do it and I guarantee you that he's going to enable you because that's just the way God works and that's the result of him and us and his power and life working in our hearts. Let me pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word. It's, uh, it's alive. It, uh, it's sharper than a knife. It, it cuts into us. It circumcises our hearts, redirects our thinking. Sometimes it seems like these words are dead on a page, but if we can really let you speak through them, it will turn our lives upside down and revolutionize who we are. So I pray that you'd help us forgive, Lord. I, I don't often want to forgive. It's not in me. But I know that with your help, I can live as you did, that I can suffer forgiveness. I can thank you for forgiving me and trust that you're going to do this sort of work in, in, in each of us. And so help us to that end, Lord. Uh, we love you and we're grateful that you've been present with us this morning. Amen.